Welcome to the No Film School podcast. This is Gigi Hawkins. And today I speak with editor Joanna Noggle. Joanna is a Brooklyn-based editor who has cut various films, comedy specials, TV shows, including Rami, Big Mouth, Two Dope Queens, and The Bear, seasons one and two, along with her team at the company she co-founded called Senior Post. She was recently nominated for an Emmy for her editing work on the series in the Outstanding Picture Editing for a Single Camera Comedy Series category. But she's not tethered to one specific film or genre editing style. She does all types, as you can see by her resume. And most recently, she edited Molly and Max in the Future. This is a film that is doing the festival circuit right now. And it stars Zaja Mamet. And it's set a billion years into the future where magic and sentient robots and demigods sort of run the world. Well, the universe. Molly and Max bump into each other and over the course of 12 years, four planets, three dimensions, and one space cult, they have a romance. So think when Harry met Sally, but set in the future. Anyway, in our conversation, we'll get into the tips, tools, and emotional caretaking work that Joanna does to tell the best stories and work with her team. We'll uncover what you do when you wholeheartedly disagree with something that a director is telling you, how you can manage a team of people in a sprawling, episodic story, editing across multiple locations, and how dogs sometimes take care of us while we're taking care of them. I loved this conversation because we dig into Joanna's perspective on the care and balance that it takes to tell great stories and what that means for her day-to-day as an editor. And here's my interview with Joanna Noggle. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome, Joanna, to the No Film School podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Now, this isn't your first foray into No Film School. I I, I was looking at your website and I see that you've created explainer videos for us in the past. So I guess you're back. I know I'm back. You you had me back. I'm so honored. That was such a like fun little like side project. Like when I was in between, like, you know, a little earlier in my career in between projects, that was like one of the fun things I did to keep busy was just make these kind of like video essays about topics I was excited about, whether it be mockumentaries, the Bechdel test, horror films being underrepresented at the Oscars. And it was so fun because it was a way to like kind of keep myself creative, you know, do a project that was like basically just on my own. I just was making them with my friend, Josh, Josh Sr. And yeah, it was just like kind of a fun way to, you know, show people what I was interested in and keep refining my editing skills and watch a ton of movies. So it was fun. And thank you guys for putting them out in the world. Oh, well, it's, it's, I, I had nothing to do with it, but it was truly my pleasure because I watched the Bechdel test one 
um, Year- like years ago. And earlier today, I watched the one about horror movies and Oscar films. And I was like feeling very passionate about it. I was like, we need more horror celebrated. And you laid it out in such a wonderful way. So yeah, um, I guess I made that probably before Parasite. So now Parasite is kind of, you know, uh, a a good example of an Oscar film that was also a horror film. But yeah, it's crazy when you start looking at it, you're like, wow, Silence of the Lambs. And like, kind of, that's it. That's it. (laughs) Rebecca, was that the other one? Rebecca, which is like also debatable, even a horror film. Like it's very like thriller-y, almost more like noir. So anyway. Even in the like the the shot in it, it says, Rebecca, the most glamorous film you'll ever see. And yeah. so I'm like, they're clearly trying to redirect our, our energy. Um, right, right. Well, actually, that's a perfect segue into how you got your start. And, and I know now you co-own Senior Post. You mentioned your co-founder, but I'd love to hear how you got your start as an editor. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I always loved making like little videos like with my siblings growing up. It was always just something I was drawn to. And I didn't really realize you could make a career out of being a filmmaker. I'm from suburban New Jersey. My parents are physical therapists. So I took like a film critique class in high school that just kind of opened my world to the way to talk about films and digest films and consume films. And I had the teacher told me to watch Casablanca and it kind of blew my mind. So that made me apply to NYU to the film program. And when I got in, I was like, this is so awesome. And I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do in the program. But sophomore year, I took a class called Sight and Sound Film, where we were filming on 16 millimeter and then literally cutting and like taping it together on a steam deck. And something about just doing that process just made me fall in love with editing and just seeing it so, you know, concretely and so tangible to just say, I'm taking this, I'm taking this, I'm putting it together that can create a visceral reaction was just so cool. And really, I think, I don't know, it made sense for my creative brain and my way of figuring out how I fit into the filmmaking and storytelling process best. So after that, I just, you know, committed to editing, dedicated myself to that, edited a whole bunch of short films from people in my class, which was a great experience to do a bunch of genres, meet a bunch of people. And then graduated looking for freelance work. And one of the people I met was this guy, Josh Sr. He had just opened up a post house called Senior Post. And at the beginning, it was us just like editing videos next to each other side by side for, you know, web content and like commercials. And for years, that was just like what we did and how we made money. And it was very fun, but kind of, you know, we were like, you know, just figuring it out together. And then we got the chance to work on a comedy special for HBO. And that kind of led to us getting more comedy specials. We met the A24 TV department, worked on the show Rami. And that's where we met Chris Storer, who now, you know, is our favorite collaborator, creator of The Bear, directs a bunch of the episodes as well. So it was really great to not just be meeting all new people on this project that blew up into such a big thing. It was working with people who I had worked with for years and really trusted and knew we had a similar sensibility and taste. So I was really able to, you know, kind of dive right into the deep end and figure out what the show was going to be with them with the shorthand we had already established on Rami and other projects in the past. It's it's so interesting to see this gradual build that you had, obviously working on short films and this shorter form content on the when you first started out with Josh, but but moving into entire seasons of shows, how did how did you start to think differently about the the storytelling that you were doing when you went into more long form content? Yeah, I mean, the cool thing about shows and especially, you know, I've mostly been doing half hour is it is almost like cutting a short film. And obviously you have to think about it within the context of the whole season. So 
you're editing a bunch of short films back to back that hopefully <laughs> become an anthology or something like that. But yeah, I love working in TV because, you know, having multiple editors on the bear, Adam Epstein is the primary second editor and being able to just like pass the baton back and forth and say, oh, okay, I've cut my first two episodes. Now I can't wait to see what Adam did. And then I get to you know, feel creatively inspired all over again, maybe use some of the things that he threaded through his episodes then in my later ones. So that was really cool and felt a little less intimidating than diving just like, you know, into a feature. Now that I've done a couple of features too, it's funny. It definitely is kind of a different mindset. Like, you know, in an episode, you really want to start out strong and end strong. Like, you know, you want people to keep, to keep watching, to keep clicking, you know, to keep streaming. And, you know, you can have these bigger jumps between episodes, whereas in a feature, you really have to sustain it, you know, throughout 90 minutes or however long it ends up being. So I love cutting both, but it definitely is like the pacing is very different for each of them, just because obviously the end result will be so much different. Now, when you were starting to work on specifically Rami and the bear, which outside of this conversation that people have always called out how cinematic the episodes are, how they are like complete stories in the and standalone in a way like their mini movies. Was that part of the conversation earlier on when you were developing the feel for the show? Yeah, I think Chris always wanted it to feel like it was a film in bite-sized segments almost because they put so much time and energy and attention into all the little details. The production design is so beautiful. The cinematography is so beautiful. Obviously the performances are next level. So I think he never wanted to, you know, say it's just TV, you know, that TV can get a bad rap, but I think he really wanted it to feel like, you know, if you watch this whole thing back to back, it would feel like a four hour or five hour movie, as opposed to feeling like maybe recreating some of the tropes that we've seen on television before. And one of the major inspirations he gave me in season one was like 70s and 80s and 90s Scorsese films. So he really wanted it to feel gritty and fast paced. And I mean, I like worship at the temple of Elma Schoonmacher. So I was like, Uh yes, if I can, if I can try to like imitate her style, like, oh my God, what an honor. And one movie, especially that I always like to call out that really stuck with me is this movie called Bringing Out the Dead which I think is in the 90s, but it follows Nicolas Cage and he's an ambulance driver. And yes, Martin Scorsese, Thelma Schoonmacher, his normal crew. And it's a great reference for the bear because it's basically about Nicolas Cage's character losing his grip on reality and becoming overtaken by the job and dealing with the city. Like the city of New York is such a factor. And he has these really quiet scenes where he's in the hospital with the people he's helped and you know he's trying to make connections with them. And then he'll go out on the street and it's just complete chaos. So that was really like my guy light in the first season of finding these moments of chaos and that are loud and everyone's stressed and yelling over each other, but also finding really moments of quiet to like sit with these characters and build empathy. So yeah, I'd say that, you know, films have been, have been our reference point probably even more than other TV shows. It's interesting that you bring up place and obviously the bear Chicago instantly comes to mind, but I also want to tell I also want to talk about Molly and Max in the future, which is centered around the universe, but it's so yes. specific in place. And, you know, the film has been doing this amazing festival run. I assume you guys are fresh off of Fantasia Fest. It's actually this coming weekend. Oh so my gosh. We're, okay. Yeah. Oh, so we're you're preparing for it. I'm like, I know yeah. it's in the ether right now. Um, which like feels like, I mean, you premiered at South by, but what a great place to be bringing it as where I feel like you're going to find these even deeper cuts like fan, but 
fans yes. for, of the film, but like the, it's this film that is out, out of this world, quite literally, as I explained in the introduction to the podcast. But talk to me about how you set a place for this story so specifically when there was no actual place that you could hang on to. Right, right. Well, that's the thing that I loved about the script that Michael, my husband, wrote. He's the writer and director of the film, is that everything, all the emotions that happen in the story are so relatable. And he was really inspired by When Harry Met Sally. And so we follow this relationship over the course of, you know, years and there's big time jumps and the thing that's relatable is that we have all made connections with people. We've all lost touch with people, you know, run into people from our past, you know, evaluated whether someone was a friend or a romantic interest. But you've never done that, you know, on this fake planet while drinking Glorp soda or watching like a robot fighting match. So uh-huh. I think that's what his, you know, creative ad- imagination is so good at is taking this thing that's very grounded and putting it in this insane world. So I think there's an entry point for people who like are like, oh, I can't get into sci-fi because like it's not, you know, there's nothing tangible about it. There's nothing real about it. And then people who don't like rom-coms because they're like, oh, they're so sappy. I feel like this walks the perfect line between them because there's a little something for everyone. And it's a way to talk about very human things in a very like extraordinary extraterrestrial way. And beautiful environment. Like the... gosh, yeah. The thing, watching the credits at the end where they're like, this is what the what we were actually shooting and then seeing what it is. That was so impressive. And I'm I'm less experienced in post-production. I mean, I've actually only learned how to edit in Adobe Premiere when I made a short film that our audience has heard about a million times that wasn't working and I had to reverse engineer the story. Yes. And and we had one visual effects shot. Like that was it. And yeah. where we basically like put text on a static thing and made it work. But this was very different. Like you were the worlds had to be built that you were editing. So how did that workflow work? And if if you also want to touch upon some of the tools that you were using when bringing together this world. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, I'm a Premiere loyalist. I have only opened Adobe Premiere for editing in the last like decade plus. So we were always going to use that on this project. But really, I don't think that there's any other way we could use have used another software because every... I think every single shot was a VFX shot in that movie. I should get the total number because it's absurd. But yeah, basically every single shot was either green screen or it was shot in LED screen, LED stage, but then they had to add other, you know, elements on top of it. So being able to have Michael and Zach, who was the director of photography and VFX, you know, head of VFX, be able to make things in After Effects and then import them into Premiere so seamlessly was just an amazing workflow. And, you know, I was doing so much temp comping in Premiere too, really, really not on the level, but it was so helpful to just like use the like, you know, color key, you know, effect filter, be able to at least see like, okay, we have this like reference image of what the background's going to be because it's tough. I mean, obviously we were cutting to performance and the emotional connection between these two characters and their chemistry is really the the heart and soul of the film. But also we wanted to at least get an idea of like, okay, how much are people going to be looking at their face? What's going to be in the background? Like it's hard when you're only looking at green screen to know exactly like, is this paste correctly? So even though we didn't have the final VFX before picture lock, obviously it was helpful to just have like that temp, you know, temp design in there. And we did a ton of temp sound work too, just because again, if you're like creating this entire environment, we really had to do at least, you know, the first pass of saying, okay, what does it sound like to be playing, you know, 
cyberball, you know, on this like undetermined planet. Like we need something to at least ground us in what this is going to be. And then Bob, our sound mixer, you know, did a way, way better job afterwards. But I at least was like, okay, we can, we can have one step in the right direction. <laughs> oh, I think you might be muted. Oops. When you got to picture lock and then you started to put the VFX in, did you ever go back and fix anything or were you locked in fully? Honestly, we stayed picture locked. It's yeah. pretty insane. I I thought we were going to break it, but yeah, we we were like so close to the deadline. We premiered at South by Southwest on, I think it was March 11th. And I think we like fully finished the film March 7th, maybe. Like we were oh down gosh. to the wire. And not because we were procrastinating. We were working on it nonstop. It was just like we shot it. I think we were shooting it in like August. So the fact that all the VFX were done, all the, you know, editing, sound mix, color, like shout out to our very small but very talented team who really made it happen because it was it was a crazy, uh, a crazy push. <laughs> That's a- absolutely incredible. I'm so impressed. I'm so impressed. How And how did you, were you cutting in real time, like as you were receiving the footage? Pretty much, yeah. So they were shooting in New York and the, you know, the positive side to being married to the director was he just brought a drive home every yeah. night and I would like offload the dailies and be like, okay, cool. And we were cutting raw, which also is pretty amazing that Premiere was able to handle that the whole time and made the turnover to VFX later so much easier because we were working in such a condensed timeline to have to transcode everything and then up it and then turn it over. Like it just would have, we wouldn't have made the deadline that we had you know, had set for ourselves by getting into South by. So, so yeah, being able to do that with the like 4k or 6k footage in some cases was amazing. We just broke the film down into reels. It's actually very easy because there's eight chapters in the film. So we're able to basically do eight reels, which made it very simple for, for breaking it up. So yeah, yeah, it was definitely, it definitely could not have worked with any other workflow. That's, I'm so impressed. Were you, what was the film shot on? Was it Ari? I wish I could tell you. I feel like people ask me this about projects and I'm like, I literally hear the camera name and I'm like, amazing. And then it immediately uh, leaves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, you don't need to know. that This will be follow-up. This will be follow-up. Okay, now I'm curious to hear, let's zoom back out and talk about more of this like production workflow. Because like you've edited multiple features, you've edited multiple shows, you're running this, you're co-running this production house and you're thinking about ingesting this data and telling these stories at such scale. Like most editors that I speak to are focusing on the one story in front of them, which is a lot of information to contain. So talk to us about how you run your post house and what tools you use to do this? Yeah, I mean, we are, we definitely have hosted films or TV shows that have used other programs, whether it's Avid or, you know, Final Cut X, or even some people are starting to cut and resolve. But really, we cut almost everything in Premiere. If we're setting up the workflow, we'll recommend Premiere. So when they're shooting the bear, they're in Chicago and we're all working remotely, and I'll do my editor's cuts remotely keeping up with them in real time. And so we use Adobe Productions, which has worked super well because we have all the shared media on Lucidlink and then are able to see who's on which project. They shoot so much B-roll on the show. And in season one, it was so much kitchen stuff. In season two, a lot of construction things. In both seasons, Chicago B-roll, so much. 
<laughs> so much stuff, a, a wealth of, of, you know, riches for us to pull from. And on top of that, we also have so much like sound effects, music library. So having that in a shared space that Adam and I can access it, that all of our amazing AEs can access it is really crucial. So we've set up a lot of shows like that at Senior Post just because it's nice that then when people are working from home, they have that set up. But then if we're going to work in the office, it's not like, okay, I have to bring the drive. Did I copy over the project file? You go in and you're just opening up Lucid. You're opening up the same Adobe production and you can like dive right in. And so it makes kind of being able to have that flexibility really nice, which I personally like. I feel like sometimes I need a little bit of space to just like dig into a scene, figure out what's working, experiment with things that like, I know are half-baked ideas, but like, cool get hopefully get me somewhere that's a little bit better than that but also sometimes just being in the room and collaborating like that's so important especially I find for like that last push like tying up all the loose details like sometimes you can't do that stuff over email or even over over zoom so I love that I we have that flexibility with this workflow to be able to do both those things and feel like neither of them is suffering or compromising as a result yeah yeah I I, I feel like I get we have this like writers get to write from cafes. And I actually do yeah. see a lot of people work editing at LaMille here in Silver Lake. And I'm like, man, this, I always forget that laptops can handle it. Not that you're necessarily taking a laptop home, but like, that's the image that I'm getting is like, sometimes you do need to like, get out of your space to dig into the problem that you're workshopping. Totally. Especially when like something's not working, which brings me to a very specific question that I had written down for you. Sure. Which is about editing when you get to a point in editing are you have you ever gotten to the point where you're like we do not have the shot that we need to make this work which you know a, a Charles Hayne or a co-host is, is like workshop it find a way the last thing you should be doing is pickups but I'd love to hear about like d- digging into a moment where you like I worked this so hard but there is not we need something else and what is that sort of workflow to bridge that gap I know it's such, it it always is tough to be the bearer of bad news when you're like, you just didn't get it on set, you know? And I feel like earlier in my career as I was starting to edit, I'd just be like, oh, well, we don't have it. Like, that's it. And I feel like I'm just always trying to creative problem solve. And, you know, there's so many tools that we have as editors as our disposal, whether it's ADR, whether it's like, you know, VFX, maybe it's punching in on a shot. I feel like I always try to like, you know, if I'm feeling like we just don't have the footage, I try to go back to the dailies and watch like the end of takes or the beginning of takes, see if there's something that we can like, you know, will not be like totally right, but maybe we can like mold into what we need. That's one of the benefits also about cutting the bear while they're shooting in Chicago is there are a couple of times where I was like, you know, like if we just had this one shot, like this would really make the scene or like we're missing like a little bit of transitional material there. So I always try to like keep up, be a day behind the daily so that as I'm assembling, I can kind of be talking to Chris and Josh, whoever's on set to say, oh, if we got this one thing, it would like really make a difference. One of the like moments that comes to mind is in episode two of season one, there's like a montage of like Carmi and he's staying late and he's like scrubbing the floor and he's there all alone. And they were like, I'm not really sure it's like, we're selling like, you know, the idea that he's there alone. And then Chris was like, oh, why don't we just pick up like people like putting their punch cards in the little like, you know, slots like on the, on the, on the wall and the beef. And it was so nice because it was like, oh, this is such a succinct, easy way of just saying like, oh, everyone is home. Carmi cares so much about this place. He cannot separate himself from work. And, you know, did we absolutely need it? It probably would have worked without it, but I think the scene is just so much stronger for it. So that's definitely a, a pro to having your editor working while you're also shooting and they can be 
reviewing what's there or not. I remember that specific montage oh, nice. or that specific yeah. moment. And and I would have never thought that it wasn't already planned to be there because it's so organic. But also, like there's something very tactile specifically about the punch cards that that resonates. I I I do have a question about sort of setting the pace for these montage cooking moments. And and I don't know if you edited this episode, but episode three or four, there's a just the most beautiful donut montage. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? I do. Yes. Because I was like salivating while cutting it. I was like, oh my God, there's some okay, donuts. So yeah. <laughs> that's, the, that's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And like, I could feel the love of the love and care of the character, but also the love and care for this thing. And it made, it changed my perspective on donuts. Amazing. I'm like, oh, this is beautiful. These are beautiful. So can you take us through that, like creating something like that, which like does have this story. And I'd say maybe it's like a B story because we're like, see, I forget the name of this character, but like he's, Marcus, we're seeing yeah. Marcus. Mm-hmm. He's, he's slowly exploring his passion for this. And, and, it, and it's not like a major, major story turn at this part of the season, but like it's so important to build. So I'm curious, like, was this always supposed to be a montage? Was that in the script? Or were you like, let's build it. Let's give Marcus this moment. Like, talk me through that particular scene. Yeah, that was that was actually some of the footage that they shot relatively late in season one, if I remember correctly. So I think we we're always like, I don't know how exactly we're starting this episode. Like we want Marcus like coming to this bakery early in the morning, like seeing him look at the glass and all the beautiful colors and you know, I think you're so right. Like up until this point, it's really been like the Carmi, Richie, Sydney show. Like those are kind of our three main characters. And this was the first time we're kind of getting into his head. And something we've talked about a lot on the show is how Marcus is one of the most kind of like introspective, like meditative characters in the show. And in all of the chaos going on around him, he's always kind of this like island of calm. (laughs) So I feel like this montage was like kind of the first time we got to explore those themes and really just like taking in the beautiful process of like how these donuts are made, showing him like licking his lips, like, you know, just like so enamored by this. And I think it's cool because Carmi and Sydney both are, you know, established chefs by the time that they're at the beef, like they've been training and Marcus is a little bit more self-taught. And so it's cool to see his like like you said, like the spark of his passion start here. And then we really expand on it in episode four of the second season where he goes to Copenhagen and is training alongside the chef. And that was another episode that we really wanted to feel a departure from the pace that we'd set. You know, we we linger a lot more in that episode. There's a lot more quiet. There's a lot more like silence. And that really was intentional to try to make it feel like, okay, we're leaving Chicago. We're leaving this world. Marcus is having his own experience. What would a episode driven mostly by his perspective feel like. So yeah, I think we definitely, that was like the first time we got to experiment with it, with that like gorgeous stylized donut footage and then got to expand on it even more as we got to know all the characters better. I wonder if the bear was making movies, would Marcus be the editor? Oh, that's a good question. I think he might be. He's like the one who's like calm, cool, and collected 99% of the time. Yeah, and yeah. Everyone just like, is loves him and wants to like, you know, collaborate and like with go him, and so. hang around his energy. Yeah. Yes. They're like, this guy's a rock. This guy's got is seeing something that we're not seeing, seeing this beauty in this thing. 
Oh my oh. gosh. I love this analogy. This is, <laughs> this is good. You're onto something, Gigi. <laughs> okay. Okay. We'll have to like, by the end of this series, once the bear wraps, we'll do a full analysis of exactly. how, how this works. Um, totally. Okay. Now here's another question for you. And this is like, this could be related to the bear, to Molly and Max. Yeah. And... Molly and Max in the future. I wanted to say the whole name. I just love the title of that movie. Amazing. But have you ever been in this position where you've had a director try or a director has had has wanted something like whether it's a shot or a scene has wanted you to make this edit that you have wholeheartedly disagreed with? And what do you do in that situation? Yeah, you know, it's so funny. I feel like, you know, as editors, we take such like pride in our work and we spend so much time putting together our first cut and being like, oh, I really want to, you know, just nail it right out of the gate. And I feel like when I was like a little bit younger, anytime I got notes, I would find myself like my first reaction being like, well, no, 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 they just don't get it. You know, like this is the best way. And I have made a conscious effort to stop myself from doing that because it's not productive. And also, you know, even if someone pitches an idea and you're like, I don't think this is going to work like 99% of the time, if I try it, even if that isn't the answer, sometimes it is. And I'm just wrong. That definitely happens. But sometimes it's like, well, this wasn't totally right, but this took us to step B and that will take us to step C when D is actually the solution. So I think oftentimes I'll also try to ask like, what's the note behind the note? Like sometimes, you know, Someone will just say, oh, like, I don't like this shot. And I'm like, I don't think it's actually the shot. I think the problem is that the scene is too long overall. You know, like, what is what is the thing that's actually bumping you about it? So I think that's also just a benefit to, like, being in the room, working with people who are open to collaboration because, you know, it can be easy to just be like, that's not going to work. And you might be right, but if you don't at least try this thing, it might not open you up to this other solution, which is actually the right thing, but you have to, like, take the detour to get there. So it's so easy. Duplicate your sequence. You can always come back to it, but like you owe it to the people you're working with, especially if they're the director or they're the producer or the showrunner to at least try their idea. And, you know, worst case scenario, you wasted some time and you go back to your version, but now you're more confident in it. So. And to the be- the benefit is then you can, you also are on the same page that like, oh, this idea, we tried it. We've, we, we know that it doesn't work. And now we're more confident in our choice to move forward. Totally. Yeah. There's this editor who I really look up to. Her name's Kate Sanford. She cut like a bunch of Mrs. Maisel and Bossy Burden and The Patient. She's just a really talented editor. And I heard her speak once and she was like, as an editor, you should always try to be part of the solution because that's so much more rewarding. If you're like the stick in the mud, who's just like, no, 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 we don't have that. That's not going to work. Like, who is that benefiting? Like, you know, like, and then when they do figure out a solution, which they will, and you weren't a part of it, then you don't get to like celebrate that win. And like, those are like the best moments in the edit room when you like try to see like 20 different ways, but the 21st way you're like, wait, we figured it we out. Like it. that's, you know, that's the, that's what keeps us coming back. You know, I that's mean, the best feeling in the world. <laughs> it is the best feeling in the world. I think in, yeah. in post and also like when you crack a story, I think, or break a moment in a story. And I think it is the same feeling that writers have when they're writing. Or yeah. I think it's harder when you're on set as a director because like, unless you can see what, what you're editing together. Like, I don't think you, I don't know, maybe I'm just too green, but I feel like you never fully know if you got it, you think you got it, but like, how can you ever really know until you see it in the edit? But in the edit, that's where you can get to those moments, those turning points where you're like, okay, cool. Now this is working. Often then it it shows other things that aren't working, but you know how to work around that. And now you're working towards something. 
Totally. I, I want to bring this to sort of more of the emerging editor, emerging filmmaker perspective. You know, you you mentioned these sort of like initial reactions when you were younger, when it come, came to getting notes, which like totally resonates with me because you're like, oh, well, you know, but yeah. what have you seen or what advice do you have for folks who are sort of just getting their start and like how they can sort of get into that mindset that you're describing, that sort of open, let's think again, let's rethink, let's workshop and let's sort of like embrace the journey mindset. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's like a muscle you kind of have to build. And I, I'd say I have two thoughts there. One is that I feel like I've worked with editors who spent like so much time on their like editor's cut or like want to make it like perfect before they show it to anyone. And then by the time they're like getting feedback, they're like, oh, I'm like sick of the footage or I'm like, I've grown too attached. So, you know, you always want to put your best foot forward. I'm not saying you should like share something that's sloppy, but also like if I get to the point where I'm like, okay, this is starting to feel good. There's a couple of things I want to change, but like I should start like getting feedback. I try not to be too precious with that first cut because no one will ever submit, you know, an editor's cut and it will be picture locked. There will always be changes and it will be better because of it. So I don't think you should spend too much time like obsessing over all of the little details. And again, not to say you shouldn't care about the work, not to say you shouldn't put time into it, but also know when to like bring other people into the conversation because that will just like start the collaborative process you know, the person whose vision it is, like you want to get them in the mix. So once you've gotten your stab at it, then, you know, bring them in. It's a muscle that you have to build. So try to get in the room with as many people as you can. Like if you have a friend who's like making a short film, offer to edit it. And, you know, if you if they introduce you to someone else, like every director, every producer, every showrunner is going to have a different way they like to work, a different way they like to communicate. So I was lucky going to NYU to just get to like edit a whole bunch of films for different people. And they were all starting out too. Like none of us knew what we were doing, but it was a great way to like practice, you know? And like, there are certain times that I was like, oh, I was too defensive here. Or like, maybe I pushed this idea too hard or wasn't respectful of their vision. And like, people will make those mistakes, but like the sooner you do that, the sooner you'll figure out that balance of being confident in the room, being able to pitch your ideas, feeling like you're part of the creative process, but not being, you know, someone who doesn't, isn't open to other perspectives or other ideas. Yeah. And also like having grace for others who are still figuring it out, especially in that early phase. It's such a like nebulous thing that requires so much iterating and so much trial by error that, you know, we, I'm sure we've all been in the edit where we're like, yep. And this is as far as we can take this film because of all these other factors and which is like very hard, but also part of the process and it doesn't mean it wasn't worth it and there aren't great things about it. Totally. And just like that mindset, I think like you were saying that we're all on the same team. Like we all want this to be good. Like no one's actively trying to make a bad TV show or a bad film. Like if someone gives you an idea that you disagree with, it's not because they're trying to sabotage the project. Like try to like change your perspective and be like, okay, I think they're responding this way because they're actually insecure about this thing that they directed, you know, like I think it can be a little frustrating when directors are like, oh, I hate watching editors cuts. And you're like, well, I worked really hard on this. And it's only because they're seeing their self, you know, they're seeing all their own flaws or taking from set. So I think also trying to like divorce your ego from it and just being like, here's the footage. You know, the first cut will not be the final cut. It's going to get better. Let's just get into it. (laughs) You're a little bit of a therapist too, I guess. I was going to say, there's a lot (laughs) of emotional support that goes into it. Wow, it's Mm -hmm. such a process. I want to hear about 
sort of like the day in the life. So like, how are you? Are you a burn in the midnight oil? Are you? Do you wake up early and sort of have like a clear head when you get into these messy scenes? Do you work nine to five? Like, what does your day look like these days? Yeah, I mean, it depends on, you know, the show or the project, like for Molly and Max, just because of the the factor that it was a small team. We were working kind of around the clock. We were working, you know, like weekends. We were working, you know, weird hours because, you know, it was mostly me and Michael doing the mm-hmm. edit together. Um, we went on a family vacation, but we were like, we got to make the deadlines. We like brought a Mac studio <laughs> yeah. external monitor. So we were definitely unorthodox hours, but it was really, really fun. But I try to keep mostly normal hours just because, you know, first I feel like that's important for the rest of the team. You know, like you want to, as the editor, you want to like lead by example for your assistant editors. Like, I don't want them burning out if we don't have to. Obviously, if there's a big deadline or like you're in an attended session, sometimes that'll go a little bit later. But like, to me, there's no reason to like kill yourself with like 14 hour days as you're like just getting into the footage. And I think like knowing when to cut yourself off too. I feel like sometimes I'm like, you know, I, I feel like I'm just someone who always likes to be ahead of the game, trying to get, you know, be on top of the dailies coming in. But also if I'm working and I'm like, you know what? It's like 5 p.m. Normally I try to work till seven, but it's just like not happening for me. No one to step away. Like no one to, you just need to like sleep on it. If you can like forget about it for, you know, even 12 hours, I feel like then I'll come back to stuff and be like, oh my God, this was so obvious. I just had to use the close up sooner, you know? But sometimes when you're just like banging your head against the desk, you're like, all right, this is not happening today. Like if you can take the dog for a walk, like, you know, go like sit outside for 20 minutes, come back or sleep on it or take the weekend. And yeah, I think fresh, a fresh perspective will, will always do you good. That is probably one of, you're going to save people many, many hours of their lives because they'll be able to like step away and then come back and find the solution. I think that's, there's, there's always going to be that feeling that there's more work to be done. And I think that this industry in particular very much supports a grind culture that isn't always healthy. And so to be able to set those boundaries and set those examples, like you said, it's so, so important. Yeah. Um, Oh no, definitely. For your mental health, for everyone else. It's like also, yeah, for the whole team, like if you can be the one to set that example to be like, look, I know I'm not at my best. Like, I think we should just sleep on it. Let's come back to it. Like, I think being able to say that in a respectful way is just a really good boundary to create for yourself and proves that you're taking the job seriously too. You know, it doesn't mean yeah. you're lazy. It's like, no, like if we're here and working, let's do good work, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to quote you in my pitch yeah. to get a dog, um, oh which I've been working aw- working away at my boyfriend too, but we need it so we can get away from our desks. It'll be great. It'll be great. Oh my gosh. Well, we're, Michael and I are obsessed with our dog. She supervised the entire Molly and Max edit. So oh my she's, gosh. She's what actually, kind of dog? I don't know if you can see, but let's she's see. on my couch right behind me. Oh. I can't. Uh, there she. Oh my gosh, she's so good. Hi, hundred percent good. Hundred percent fresh. Hundred percent fresh. Yeah, today's actually her three-year anniversary. So oh shout gosh. out to Maple. I've had her for three years. So congratulations. She's a, she's a good editing room buddy. <laughs> I think that is good for our mental health. And and I actually do think that people in LA really specifically thrive from dogs. It's such a dog-centric place because it's like well, we're all these like people who want to tell stories and connect with people and connect with things. And like, if we're alone writing or editing, like we need to find something that gets us out of the house and something that loves us unconditionally. Yes. (laughs) It's not so much to ask. 
I know like, she will definitely encourage me to like go for a walk when oh. I'm like, oh, I could work for another two hours. And I'm like, oh, but I need to walk for her. And then yes, I'm always like, this is the best thing for me too. It's a win-win. Oh, she's so good. <laughs> okay. I have one more question for you. And, and this is actually outside of this industry completely. And it's about banana bread. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> you are a banana bread fan, fanatic, oh would you say? It's probably my favorite baked good. I definitely am not Marcus level baker, but I do make a pretty good banana bread. I will say that I always okay, have like okay. so many frozen, like, you know, brown bananas in my freezer, just waiting for the next batch. But yes, I, I definitely have like a sweet tooth. And I feel like banana bread is like the, I at least trick myself into thinking it's like the healthiest of all sweets. So it's the healthiest of all. <laughs> it's a, it's, it's practically a fruit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> practically a vegetable. Um, Okay. Okay. So do you have for our listeners, and this is all in the vein of supporting work-life balance. Do you have a recipe that they got to try? Oh my gosh. I mean, I, there's one that I got, like, you know, I think I got it maybe from my mom years ago and I've just used it since. And I have it like handwritten on like a little card that's like, you know, curled at the edges. Oh my gosh. Filled, you know, like the batter on it at some points, but uh, yeah, it's kind of a like, you know, normal ingredients, but I can definitely, I don't know if there's a place to like post it. I can share it with you. It's not nothing too secret. If I'm feeling crazy, I'll add chocolate chips or walnuts, but you know, it's just like a classic good banana bread. (laughs) That sounds great. It sounds, it's some, there's some tie into the bear. There's some tie in to Molly and Max in the future and all the work you're doing at senior post. And and yeah, is there anything else you want to share with us while we still got you on the podcast? And I hope this isn't the last time because this has been such a wealth of knowledge. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I feel like I just love talking to people about the creative process. And as I was starting out, it was so intimidating because there's no like one way to establish yourself as an artist, as a filmmaker with whatever, you know, field you choose. So yeah, I would say I just want to like encourage people that like the only way that you'll become a good filmmaker is by doing it. So to bring it back to like those no film school videos, like when nobody would hire me to cut anything, I was like, all right, I guess I should do this myself and would just like, you know, rip videos, put it together, write something. And it also gave me more empathy for writers and directors. I was trying to like write and create something on my own. I was like, man, this is hard. So also, you know, just having having respect for the person on the other side who's giving you notes. Sometimes you're like, oh, I can't believe like we're still looking at this scene. And it's like, well, no, it's really hard to be articulating your vision to someone else. So the more you can empathize with those people and figure out the better way to collaborate with them, the better, you know, all of your projects will be moving forward. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us, Joanna. And everyone go see Molly and Max in the future at festivals now. This is coming out next week. So it will be at Fantasia Fest. So if you're there, check it out. Awesome. That's great. And yeah, we're playing at a couple more festivals coming up in the next few weeks. And then it'll be, we'll have a, a limited theatrical run probably early next year. So stay tuned. Amazing. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So Thank we'll, you. we might re release this episode around then so we can do a little push then. Check Perfect. in with you. Sounds great. Well, thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you so much, Joanna, for joining us on the No Film School podcast and for taking us through your ability to build connection, both with the people that you're working with, as well as the people who you're building these stories around. I was so impressed to see how Joanna 
seems to really check her ego at the door and create a space where we can prioritize story, but also prioritize the humanity of the work we're doing. It's really easy, like I said, to feel like we will get somewhere by grinding and grinding and grinding. But in reality, if we take space and we treat each other kindly, we can really get far. And I think that her work and her ability to build partnerships, whether it's co-founder Josh at Senior Post or with her husband, who is an editor and director, clearly Joanna has built relationships that are meaningful and pay off. Look at the success of all of her work. The Bear, Molly and Max in the Future, this festival run. I can't wait to see where else she goes. And I know that in the future, people will be on this podcast talking about her as she talked about other editors who she looks up to. Thank you so much for listening to No Film School. You can like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also get more No Film School at nofilmschool.com. And you can follow us on social at No Film School. We'd love to hear from you. Podcasts at nofilmschool.com. We like to answer your questions. We like your feedback. We also just love to know what you're digging about the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. 